Matt, thank you so much for jumping on. Very excited to chat with you. I just, I love your sort of extensive knowledge about all things, just trends and trends forecasts. And you've clearly read so many different uh, trend forecasts from so many different companies. You've synthesized them very well in a recent post that I want to link up to. But I'm curious, just like absorbing that many different trend forecasts from different companies. What do you, what's like your initial takeaway for how companies prepare those trend forecasts? And what are you looking for when you're digging through and pouring through these different, these different PDFs and forecasts? Like what stands out to you in terms of how companies prepare them? First of all, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, it's a mess. It, it, all these organizations approach it differently, which is perhaps a part of the problem in one of the initiatives as to why I went through this meta report process. They've run the gamut. Some are completely qualitative. It's just a bunch of people in a room saying, yep, this is a thing. Sometimes they're incredibly quantitative. There's a lot of analysis. They're pulling different sources of, of data and stacking it together. What I'm looking for at the end of the day is inspiration. So I view trend reports and in this instance, trends as trailheads. It's an input, it's an inspiration. No matter your industry or your vertical, whether you're working on a product, a service, a campaign, whatever it may be, when you're attempting to provide value and to resonate with a culture, you need to first understand culture in the first place. The people, the market, existing products and services, emerging products and services, new behaviors, new ways of thinking, new vibes, etc. You need input and you need something to react to. Uh, you need to understand the zeitgeist essentially. So while all trend reports essentially attempt to explain the zeitgeist, unfortunately, the purpose of a lot of these reports from agencies and PR firms, consultancies, uh, it's more PR and positioning than it is anything else. It's attempting uh, thought leadership in order to attract clients. There's more of an incentive and priority for organizations to say, hey, we're flashy, we're with it, than it is for them to actually accurately detail what is around the corner to help organizations. And not for anything, these reports are free, it's flashy. The real values behind the scenes and essentially what they're selling, but these are rallying cries for the industry or clients to come around to say, oh, they're with it. Their hip. So I take everything at surface value and just take everything with a grain of salt. And it's inspiration more than anything else. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. It's a great point. I never thought of before that it's a way to just share, hey, yeah, we're we're on top of things, we're on top of the trend. And what we're missing, like it's almost like the, the trend report is this sort of flashy, like superficial kind of top layer. What we're missing is the true insight that actually leads to product changes or marketing changes. And so do you see do you see those brands who are, and I know this is part of the line of work you're in, but do you see those brands who are putting out these inspirational trend reports? Are they behind the scenes incorporating that? Or I guess I'm, I'm wondering how it actually creates the depth that leads to product or marketing changes. Sometimes they do. It's a sometimes type of answer. So the way, the way in which I see it, the trends are the what? It's the surface uh, level of culture, but the real value is the driver. It's the thing beneath the surface the driver of the trend, the what or the how is this becoming a thing? And once you're able to unlock the driver with the pressure, the influence as to why we're seeing this thing, that driver, because it's beneath the surface, it, it has deeper roots. It's much larger. If you're able to understand that, you can then more easily help an organization make change. Because if you see any trend, you can't copy and paste it. You have to understand what's driving it. And how does this relate back to my work? If you're a hotel client, not every single trend is applicable that, that's out there. But for the organizations that explain the why is this trend happening, once you unlock that, everything is suddenly relatable for this hotel client because that's just human behavior. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. This is connecting some dots for me. And so this is the meta trend kind of concept is that how do you take what's beneath the surface driving that trend and make, yeah, make it applicable to the brand. Now they're connecting with, like you said, an emotional driver or like a human level driver. And that almost fits any organization. And maybe if you want to explain kind of meta trend, I know I just threw that in there, but you're connecting some dots for me is that is by seeing the meta trend. Now it's applicable to any, to any company. Exactly. So. My miniature analysis, this started about five years ago when I was recognizing the number of reports that were out there. It was impossible to keep up. And I wanted to understand what were the common denominators or the patterns that were surfacing amongst all these different reports. So I got my arms around as many as I could find and I read them all. And it was a complete obsession. I locked myself in my apartment for some time and I essentially connected the dots amongst all of these reports and all their trends. And what I came out with was the most frequently reported trends or the clusters or the themes that all of these reports were surfacing. And I've been doing this for five years now. And then most recently, it had come out with a 2022 version and it was the 14 most repeated trends. And the way in which I positioned them are to your point, the they're not necessarily drivers by any means, but they're the most common relatable themes that are happening in culture right now. And then further, I unpack how is this meta trend evolving over the last five years, noting the fact that they often don't change over time, which is its own uh, conversation. Right. But then what are the nuances? What's driving this meta trend? What are some examples or pieces that, that explain some manifestations of it? Or what are some keywords around this? And then further, I then share all of the, um, trend reports, original titles underneath it to say, this is the source material. So it's the, the meta analysis. Okay. And so just to repeat back here, would you say there's three layers, right? There's, there's the relatable kind of headline trend. That's the flashy thing everyone sees. There's the meta trend, which is maybe the actual change in the culture that's going on. And then I guess the base level is like the hierarchy of needs, just hardwired human interests that like, there's things about, let's say the sales process that kind of always remain true. The meta trend, that's the middle layer. Yes, exactly. And then the unlock for me this past year was recognizing that all three of those uh, layers are not changing. That after five years of doing this exercise, all these reports that are coming out, they're surfacing the same exact things year after year. So therefore my meta trends haven't changed. And further, right, it makes sense because the human desire, the human needs, the massive hierarchy, whatever you want to call it, that's unchanging as well. So what we get um, it's a lot of hype and a lot of excitement around the trend reports and meta trends, which right, there's clearly value in this, but my call to action this past year was like, maybe we should get a grip that there's not that much change that's happening here. And perhaps we need to challenge ourselves to look outside the box and to explore some overlooked, um, components of culture or the edges or insert some uh, friction or diversity to ensure that we're not surfacing the same trends and therefore celebrating the same meta trends because right. After looking at this for five years, there's clear through lines from the meta trends themselves, which, I mean, we know culture is dramatically changing, but the fact that these organizations are not reporting that, that's servicing a lot of question marks for me. Got it. Got it. So everybody is celebrating year after year, the same trends repackaged in a different language, a different kind of flash. And so you say, okay, I'm going to go seek out the, the missed corners here. Where's the dark spots that nobody is seeing, nobody is celebrating. And so how do you go about doing that then? How do you find what everyone else is overlooking and some of those edges? Yeah. So there's a few ways. Firstly, we can treat the meta trends as a filter. 
So if in this case, sustainability is the top meta trend for the last five years, we say, okay, we get it. Sustainability is a thing. We care about it. If you're just thinking about sustainability and climate change or the climate crisis, you're late to the party. The train has left the station. So that's one way we, we use the meta trends as a filter to then seek out everything else. Another way of going about is a framework where we could approach the meta trends from three unique perspectives. What is the other side? What is the outside and what is the dark side of this meta trend, if you will? So we take right the climate crisis, sustainability, eco obsession. What is the outside perspective? How are people living alongside the equator approach the climate crisis? What does climate migration look like? What are some outside perspectives that US or European uh, countries are not necessarily recognizing or experiencing firsthand? What is the other side? How about the fact that people are still opting for Amazon two-day shipping? that we, we don't really seem to recognize that other component of the sustainability craze. And then what's the dark side? In this case, for a climate crisis, the dark side could be acknowledging that um, therapists are coming together, trying to figure out how do we approach discussing this topic with our patients who, one, are experiencing great anxiety from this. And secondly, we've never experienced this ourselves. So therefore, what are the right approaches to easing uh, concerns and depression and nihilism? That's the dark side. So we have the dark side, the other side, and the outside perspective. The first way was using MetaTrends as the filter. And then the last third uh, funnel approach is just looking for the edges of culture. What are the weird, fringe, bizarre, sexy, strange things that are occurring on an everyday basis? And how do we validate that? How do we bring that to light? How do we treat even the most overlooked strange things with significance? Because at the end of the day, that's what's driving. And yeah, I'd love to get into sort of how you find those weird edges, because I think that's a really interesting, if you can find them, it's a great way to see sort of the future, even though it probably doesn't always feel like the future. And there's that weird exactly. paradox with that, with the, this filter, which is the other side, the outside, the dark side. Is that what a brand can look to, to truly stand out in participating in the trend? So it's like every brand is talking about sustainability. I guess the way I would look at it is maybe the trend level is table stakes. So if you're a cosmetic brand or something like that, it's, hey, you just have to be sustainable. It's just table stakes. That means you're going to fit in. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to stand out, but you have to be doing it to be relevant in today's culture. By using this framework of other side, dark side, outside, is that helping you see stakeholders who aren't being heard? Is it a stakeholder sort of question? And is that what the brands then have as an opportunity to actually segment themselves away from the table stakes trend, let's call it? Yeah, I think absolutely one, it could be a, a stakeholder question. I think it uh, could apply to anything. If you're working with, let's go back to a hotel brand, by no means does climate migration have to inform a strategy immediately, but it helps inform something else that you may be working on. Again, that goes back to the whole inspiration input value of, of all of this, which is you don't have to necessarily activate upon everything. But for as long as you're able to wrap your arms around uh, the zeitgeist and make sense of what's happening, that will spill over inevitably. And just having that just pure knowledge will just set you up for success. It's cultural context. And for as long as you understand that operating system, you could build on top of it, no matter what you're building. Got it right. So it, it's part of the filter. Hey, we want to open a second location for our store. The considerations, there's all these considerations for, for opening the second hotel or whatever. And now that sustainability is part of it or some of the other kind of meta trend components, you're, you can't help but now include some of that in your framework. So that, that's what you're saying is that it needs to be, you need to get the cultural context and then the natural outpouring is that the products will include that. 
totally culture at the end of the day is we could use the operating system analogy for one, right? You, you, if we, if you, if we view culture as this OS, you can't build an app or a, a website. If you don't first understand that operating system or that programming language, that's a tech approach. We can approach it from a more humanistic way or something more topical culture. It has a set of DNA. DNA is what governs or rules a society. It's a set of instructions, conventions, beliefs, norms, informs how we all work together or perhaps not work together. But the virus evolves, the operating system evolves as well. If you can't keep up with that spreading virus and I'll stick to the, the virus analogy. If you can't keep up with that virus and how it mutates, right, you can't then solve it and or solve for it. Not all viruses are bad. So maybe that's not the best analogy in this case, but right, we have to acknowledge what is happening here if we want to build something on top of it or solve something or resonate or whatever we actually want to do. To your point, right, it's it's cultural context as a framework, but also it's just it's baseline. It's mere awareness. We have to acknowledge what's happening all around us before we can do anything. And you have to be open to, to things changing. I really like both those analogies, the virus, the OS, because it's almost like if you're going to program in this language, make your products, you, it has to match what the whole structure itself is built for. I think one way that I think about that is if you think about like a social network, like a Twitter or a TikTok, it's very clear that there's norms within those networks that you have to speak to. So early on with TikTok, dancing was a part of the language almost that you had to learn how to speak to connect with that network. And you're saying it's the same thing, just at the entire kind of cultural level. So I guess what I'm interested in is if you need to learn the language of this culture of this, you know, and you want to find the weird fringes, it almost feels like those are opposing because the fringe, the fringe culture, it almost feels like by definition is intentionally not speaking the language. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand how would you find them and how do you know that they're going to be absorbed into the code? given that they're probably doing the opposite or something like that. You bring up a great point. So I agree. It, it definitely feels as if there's a tension here. Where my gut goes is that I actually disagree and that I think that the solution here is immersion. You, you essentially have to participate in culture or immerse yourself. And by immerse yourself, that doesn't mean you have to travel to another country or go to museums by any means. That immersion could simply be participating in, in different online forums or, or social circles. And by participating and engaging and immersing yourself and bathing in this, you learn to speak the language and you learn to spot kind of those nuances within that culture or within that subsect of whatever you're actually studying. So I think the more time you spend and the deeper you get, um, the more proficient you become in that language and the easier it is to note the nuances and th the differences that an outsider may not perceive in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, it makes me think that this is why like big brands entering trends is cringy because they don't really, it's clunky. They don't speak the language. They're like, hey, fellow kids, like here, here's this thing. I guess it, it seems like to me the advantage of a small sort of up and coming brand is that um, they tend to be more in sync or more immersed in into those cultures and they grow, they grow with it. I guess what I'm trying to get to is, I guess, understanding, circling back to how does, yeah, how does a brand, an up and coming brand start to understand, okay, I see this trend. And I'm, how, how am I actually fusing with that? How am I benefiting from it? How am I participating in a non sort of cringy way, the way that the yeah. big brands do? Well, the way in which I see it, and here's another metaphor. When it comes to participating in trend work, it's a matter of surfing, right? You spot the wave or you spot the swell, you position yourself accordingly. 
you ride that wave and then you learn when to hop off or when that wave is ending. I think there's an important nuance or difference here when it comes to small brands and startups and that of large conglomerates or organizations. The similarities that they both read and write culture. So what I mean by that is that when we work with a large client, any conglomerate, you can even go back to a hotel brand, when we help them make sense of culture, inevitably they're also creating culture at the same time, right? So it's this Ouroboros or the snake eating its own tail. We're studying culture to help them position themselves accordingly. They create a campaign, they create a new hotel, whatever it may be. That in essence is another creation of culture. So they're putting this thing out there, in this case, writing culture. And for them to know what to do next, they're reading it, but they're also reading what they were. So there's this, again, like this feedback loop. The really interesting thing or the, the nuance I want to point out is that when it comes to these startups or these smaller brands, is that there's this agility to them to better position themselves and to quicker position themselves on that surfboard that these larger organizations can't do. So they could more quickly, let me put it this way, they're more agile to get up on that surfboard or to spot that trend, right? Because when you spot something for a large organization, it takes sometimes years for them to pop themselves up. When it comes to that smaller brand, any and everything, it's not just relevant, but easy to activate upon. Everything is fair game. And that's an advantage to the upstart, to the challenger that the large organization can't necessarily get behind. So I view that while both brands are attempting to do the same exact thing, that being the small one, the large one, it's acknowledging that the large one can't, can't make every single wave while the smaller one can absolutely take any wave that they want. It's just determining which one is worthwhile. May they have the same, it depends upon, right? Activation, the larger brand has obviously more perhaps influence or weight or, or, or spread or investment, but that challenger brand could navigate that wave a lot more swift or rather swiftly. I'm not sure where exactly I'm going with that. Uh, well, surfing analogy, but I want to say, yeah, exactly. Essentially they can be a little more aggressive in a different way. So not aggressive from a spread kind of mass media way, but aggressive from a risk kind of way, right? So the small brand can see the wave coming, act faster, which is a risk in itself, like moving quickly is sort of risk in itself. Yes. And potentially also push further to the edge of what that trend is. But I really like this analogy of kind of the read-write because you're helping me see that participating in a trend is about writing another part of it for the culture to read. And so if you're not writing something new into that trend and, and to do that well, you have to actually understand what the language is, what the context is, all that. Yeah. And as just to say, to, to make that practical, that could be product lines, right? That could be influencer campaigns. That could be commercial. Like, I suppose what I'm trying to point out is that that manifests in any, you can, you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but it can manifest in any general operation of a company. No doubt. Let's go, let's tie these two metaphors together. If we go back to the virus one, or if we acknowledge what happens to a virus, it infects a host and it mutates. It evolves based upon the individual and the environment. The same thing happens with a brand, right? When a brand or organization adopts a trend, they're changing it. They're mutating it. It's evolving, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And then they're writing it and they're spitting it back out into the world. And someone else decides to adopt that. And once they adopt that, they remix it and unpack it in their own way. But I think for this reason, we view culture and memes as one of the same, right? Culture is just memes. And if we view the image macro meme on early internet days, it's the same thing, right? It's, I see something, mm -hmm. I'm going to remix it slightly based upon my own environment or my own worldview, my own body. 
I'm going to spit it back into the world and then someone else is going to remix it. And the same thing happens with trends, right? It's organizations adopt them and humans adopt them as well. And everyone's shifting um, and evolving and, and morphing this thing together. Yeah, the remixing idea, it really makes me think about social media and it, it, I'm seeing this trend. This is maybe a, a very obvious kind of wide trend of there's this thing on Twitter right now where you could call it like shitposting or there was like, I don't know if you remember the wave of like intern accounts. Or it's like a joke that was like, this is like intern, right? Wendy's intern or whatever right. it is. And it is interesting to see how companies start to see that emerging and then more people start adding it. But the responsiveness, I think to your point about remixing is, it, again, it, there's an agility advantage for a small company because it's about seeing something happen and responding in a witty way. Like that whole kind of segment was like, something's happening in culture. Let me like quote tweet, like the shit post about that. And I guess where, where I'd be curious to go with this a little bit, what I thought was interesting about that like emergent behavior is that it forced brands to start speaking in a different way. Like I've even noticed some very large, let's call them tech influencers, shitposting each other. And like, you would imagine you're like, oh, that person's personality isn't like that. And I don't imagine their brand to speak like, but now they're embracing that too. And I guess it just seems, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that other than it seems like brands have to be open to changing their persona a bit in order to fit in with the trend and in order to participate. Like you can't just stick to your kind of ways. It's no, have fun. And like, it's like the parents dancing on TikTok. It's like at a certain point, you're like, oh, that's actually cool. And they're part, they're a part of it now. Yeah. So what I want to bring up here where my mind goes is this diffusion curve. And it's essentially just a distribution curve, um, like a bell curve. And a trend essentially goes uh, through this line, it goes through this journey where it starts with an innovate, whether that be a, a teenager creating a dance or Elon Musk or someone filing patents. It starts with the innovator and it goes through this journey uh, and this kind of path through the, the diffusion curve. And it starts with early adopters. Um, it, it, it goes to early majority, late majority, laggards being right grandparents. And I bring this up to say, What's important to note is that when we think about trends and, and memes in this instance as well, everything starts with the innovator or the creator, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to jump on everything that comes out of that space. We actually want to wait for this trend or for this moment to uh, pick up critical mass where it's tipping early adopter to um, early majority. And we like the sweet spot because we know that there's traction and we know that there's enough momentum that's inevitably going to go through the rest of the journey. Because every single thing that an innovator creates, will that be a, a film, a song, a YouTube video, a TikTok dance, a meme, that doesn't mean that it's going to go through this entire journey. Sometimes memes die. Sometimes viruses die. Trends are sometimes just fads. But it's critical that we just don't hop on that bandwagon so quickly because sometimes they fizzle out. We want to wait a little bit to ensure that there's some trajectory and some energy momentum that's going to go through the rest of the journey. And the key here is to hit it early enough where we know that it's going to go through this journey, but we're not too late where it's already hitting, right? The early majority or late majority, and we're just too late to the party. So there's this dance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know you work with, I know you work with brands on this in some capacity, but how would a brand know that that sweet spot? I guess what is, and I know that's part of, you know, the work you do, and I know that's like the secret sauce in a way, but, but how do brands identify that? And maybe just more practically, what does that typically translate into for companies? Is it about their social strategy, seeing that and picking it up? Is it about partnerships? I guess I'm curious about like the tactical sort of use yep. cases. So I'll hit the last question first, which is right. How does this manifest? It can be anything, 
It could be a column strategy. It could be a tweet. It could be product development. It could be a merger and acquisition strategy. It could be a partnership or influencer collab. It could be innovation pipelines. It could be filing patents. It really runs together based upon the industry, the client size, their appetite for risk as well, budget, and what the trend itself is. So it manifests in really anything. To hit the first question, um, how do we help them or, or what is that secret sauce? So that's the constantly evolving kind of black box. I will say though, that more often than not, what's happening when it comes to the trend work here is that there's this battle between intuition and qualitativeness and then quant and AI and data. Everyone wants to ensure that any business decision that they're making, that is justified, there's money behind it or money ahead of them. And there is data to back it up because no one wants to come to the boardroom table with it. This is a thing because I kind of feel it or saw a few things. How can we quantify, score, prioritize, extrapolate, or add some dollar sign to this opportunity? Unfortunately, it's hard to do that with just, you know, a, a few brains in a room talking about what they're seeing. So there's this increased reliance upon data to prove these things out. And that data, again, runs the gamut in itself. It could be search data. It could be Amazon purchase data. It could be alternative data sources, such as competitor job openings and scraping LinkedIn to determine what types of roles are, are people hiring for. It could be Yelp reviews and movie reviews. It could be media analyses. So analyzing volume of conversations or excuse me, of headlines and the sentiment of them, or it could be social listening data. So bottom up, what are the people saying about a topic over time? analyzing emotions. It could be patent analyses. It could be VC invest. So you take all these things and my secret sauce and where I'll stop there is that you could actually use sometimes proxies and organize this data in such a way that it is possible to quantify an abstract concept by piecing together or stitching some weird numbers. So we then finally have something that's quant and heavy and has a dollar sign attached to it and compare that to other opportunities and then bring that back to a client. Yeah, amazing. And I, I think the takeaway is to, to at least have those different sort of lines of thinking, the intuition and creativity, the quant, the, the numbers to back it up, the research. So as long as you're considering those different buckets, that sounds, I, I think that sounds like the right approach. This is so interesting as a conversation because a lot of this almost feels like investing in a certain sense, right? Where like investors in the market are thinking the same way, right? They're scraping headlines and debt the stock as a business, the way we function is we fund up and coming creators for a visual trend that are potentially hitting that kind of wave point. And since the way we, we produce is all of the media is upfront um, and produced by us, we essentially are investing. We're investing our dollars in trends. We're hoping are going to grow. So there was a, a theme that we shot for, this is a while ago now, maybe two, three years ago now that was cannabis related. And obviously that was a visual trend, right? There's this whole concept of smoking weed was like, you're a hippie. You know, that was like the visual language. And then there were, but the flip side was like, Hey, there's a trend where everyone is sort of getting more involved in this industry. It's spreading to all these different states. It's not just the, the hippie fish fan or whatever it's whatever. And so anyways, I'm just finding this conversation very interesting because in this idea of analyzing trend, investing in it, or death of stock as a company is investing in a similar um, capacity. So anyways, just, I like the analogies to both those things. And, but, but I guess for any company, it's really about how do you creatively that's how death is not creatively invest in that way, but it's true for any kind of creative operation um, within a business. No doubt. It's a matter of placing bets. That's what this all comes down to. Yeah. It's you could bet on or you could bet on black or you could bet on numbers, but it's like, 
the more data that you have, the more precise of a bet that you can place. At the same time, that's not to say you can only make one bet. Culture exists as tensions, opposites inform one another. So while yes, we have the cannabis and we have psilocybin and we have more acceptance towards ketamine therapy, et cetera. We also have juice bars in New York City popping up where they serve juice cocktails and you dance uh, on a Friday night as if you're at a club, but with juice. These two things are complete polar opposites, a tethering to reality and an escape from reality, but they both inform one another. So back to kind of, we're using all these metaphors today. I love it. <laughs> right. Back to the blackjack or rather uh, the roulette metaphor, right? It's not to say you could only place one bet. And this goes back to a driver. If we understand the driver of the deeper kind of thing at play, we could be more intelligent with where to place our bets or to right, acknowledge, well, people want both escape and they want to be sober to experience what we're actually feeling right now. Acknowledging that kind of deeper human driver here allows us to make more precise bets rather than just a superficial high level, you know, one single bet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to be conscious of time. I'd love to get into a little of the drivers. I think maybe for another day, some of the examples and stuff would be, would be amazing. You know, can we get into a, a driver or two? I was starting to get interested in and intrigued almost of this idea of we want reality, like you're saying, and we want escape. So is there maybe one or two drivers that we could talk about today and, and maybe some examples of what that, yeah, how that manifests yeah. within companies? Let's do that one. We take, we take psilocybin or we take this kind of, let's go one step back because that in itself is a signal. We could take other signals such as a vibe economy, increase of purchases of lava lamps or mood lighting, LED lights, vinyl, cannabis in itself, right? That would be some of the data that we would use. We would call this the vibe economy. That would be the trend. And then the driver here would be a detached from society or a reckoning that we're in the face of some pretty dark, uncertain times. How can we drop out and forget what we're actually experiencing? That would be the driver. And then some sub drivers there could be climate anxiety, job loss, face mortality, right? We're hitting mm. hundreds of thousands of, of deaths in this country without getting too dark, but that's having an effect on our psyche and the way in which we view culture that informs how we see one another and the temporary nature of what it's like to live with someone or to interact with parents or family or coworkers or friends. It acknowledges the preciousness of life. Those things not just inform our outlook on life, but our purchases as well, or trip decisions, perhaps pun intended. So that would be an example of a sub-driver of, hey, there's this really acute dark thing that's happening. We're facing increases of death. There's declines in mental health and suicide rates. That would then impact or inform the ways in which we're looking to soothe or to self-care. In that case, that could be drugs to forget about what we're currently experiencing. Another manifestation of that could be video game culture and everything is a video game or the metaverse hype, right? What that is another manifestation of us attempting to escape this reality. So in this case, we tease all these parts together because mushing them all up, the driver here would be escaping from reality. A sub driver could be forced mortality or the climate crisis or joblessness. Um, the manifestation could be right. Ketamine therapy, or it could be entering the metaverse. And the signal of that would be, you know, Ralph Lauren creating a line of clothing in the metaverse. That's how all these things play together. But by dissecting them, pulling them all, all apart, we could understand each of the, the parts and how they inform one another. And right at the end of the day, for as long as we understand the driver of this metaverse hype or why people are attracted to ketamine or why people are looking for an escape, 
that helps inform really any other decision. And those examples of it could be launching off points for how your brand may be able to activate upon it. Yeah, that, that's amazing. It's so powerful, like the image I'm getting about what you're describing. And I definitely think that helps me understand the trend, the meta trend, the drivers. Mm -hmm. What's I think so exciting and powerful about what you're describing is like, I get excited about this is I'm like, okay, if I start a lava lamp company, that's what a brand is. It's not just, I'm selling this light that somebody flips. Exactly. Out, right. It's, oh, now I can use that as a prism or a vehicle to talk about, I could talk about climate with that. I could talk about COVID with that. I could, right. So even your brand itself can use any of those vectors. So I, that, yeah, very powerful. I'll give you another example because it's spot on. I'm working with a hardware company right now and they sell headphones. What does headphones have to do with psilocybin? If we acknowledge the deeper driver, which is an escape from reality or this vibe economy or people trying to tune in and drop out, right? There's something about the power of a headphone or intimacy of immersing yourself in audio. So even though you just sell metal and it's a hard product, how do you create this ambiance or this larger energy around your products? And that manifests as marketing or partnerships or the mere aesthetics of your social content or how you write color grade your actual photos. Hmm. Yeah, no, man, absolutely. Yeah. There's just so that that's where the depth, I, I think what you're really honing in on is this is what the depth of a brand is and all the considerations that kind of create that depth. And it's what attracts you to something, even unconsciously a certain brand versus another one. It is, I, I like that we focused in on the vibes kind of idea because it's like, how do you describe what that is? Like the consumer can't say, this is why I like that, but you can say that has a good vibe to me, that speaks to me in some way. And, and it's all those micro decisions that, that lead to that. Exactly. Yeah, amazing. I, I wanna, yeah, like I said, be conscious of time. Thank you so much for joining. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanna riff on just for a minute before we got, now I know we covered a lot. And, and then also anything you wanna shout, you've got a great uh, newsletter that I follow that feel free to, to share about that. But yeah, if we miss anything else, we can talk about it here for a minute. We, we covered it all. I think the last thing I'll end on, and maybe this is to, to eat all the words in which we, we had just put out there, <laughs> but I think the, the beautiful thing about culture is that it's inherently subjective. It's abstract, it's messy, it's complicated. We bring our own biases and agendas to the ways in which we study culture. Attempting to draw some fine lines is mission impossible. It just doesn't work. But doesn't necessarily negate everything that we had just said. I think that's an invitation or a rallying call or more inspiration to take these things seriously or to bring your own perspectives to the table and to collaborate because I just have one viewpoint. You just have one viewpoint. Um, but culture doesn't have one viewpoint. It's shared, it's collective. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about it. Without getting too sappy, there's no wrong or right answers here. There, there are few other industries, or I can't name any at least, when it comes to trend forecasting and analysis, that is as ambiguous and amorphous as something like this. So by no means is this a law or, or accounting. That's the power and kind of, that's the beauty in all this. And that's why I love doing this stuff. I see the appeal. Yeah. Like you said, it's always changing. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah. For being here. Do you want to shout out just your newsletter or anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah. So you could follow me online as Klein everywhere. That's K-L-E-I-N, K-L-E-I-N, K-L-E-I-N. And I have a zine that's uh, quite sporadic where I unpack emerging cultural trends and our budding relationship with technology. And you can find that zine, C-I-N-E dot Klein, Klein dot com. Thank you so much. Thank you.